I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we're joined by Teresa Banson, the Youth Program Manager at Bellwood Health Services. And we're here to talk about addiction and mental health. Let's talk about it. Well, here we are once again. Uh, the crew is back, all three of us. It's it's been kind of hard. It's been hard. I've had some like health stuff. Taylor's been doing dad stuff, and like you know, we've we've we're sort of like finding ourselves in positions where just the two of us are showing up to record because you know, it, it, thankfully there's three of us, and that leaves two of us sometimes to pick up the pieces. Um, but all three of us are here. However, I gotta say, Taylor, in the midst of some dad stuff, right in this moment. Zaya, sweet little Zaya that no one can see, is uh, sitting on your lap and she's feeling a little bit under the weather, but uh, but looking much brighter and wigglier than she, <laughs> she was moment, moments ago. <laughs> she is much more wigglier. She, she looks way better. So, uh, so, nice. so just a heads up to everybody uh, listening that um, in the midst of this, Taylor might just disappear. And if you're wondering where his voice went, it's... He went off to do dad stuff. Bye, Zaya. See ya. She's just walking away now. Bye. Um, but we are not here to talk about Zaya as much as it's so hard not to because she's so fucking cute. Uh, we're here to talk to our new, sen- our new friend, Teresa, uh, who is the youth program manager at Bellwood Health Services in Toronto. And uh, we're going to be talking about um, some really important stuff today, which is surrounding the world of um, uh, youth mental health addictions and and accidental overdoses um so teresa i guess do us a favor um give yourself a nice warm introduction (laughs) give us some insight into who you are and and a little bit more about uh, what it is that you do yeah great yeah thank you so much for for having me today um so yeah i'm Teresa Vanson. i currently work at uh, bellwood health services which is part of um Edgewood Health Network's sort of larger um, company. Um, and yeah, so my my background is in social work. So I have a, a bachelor in social work and master's degree in social work as well. Um, and I've been working with youth and families for uh, quite a while. Um, yeah, it, it's something that I, I really enjoy doing. I love working with teens. I think they're awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, love working with families as well, because it's it, it can be so powerful to have parents and caregivers involved in, in treatment and in therapy. So yeah. Um, yeah, but I guess before I get into all of that, just a, a bit about my background. So um, I'm trained to work um, specifically in, in eating disorders. So for many years, I worked mm. at Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, um, helping support families and youth who have a diagnosis of an eating disorder and, and doing um, the therapy there. I also uh, did a short stint at BC Children's Hospital, um, again, in their eating disorder program. Um, and so since then, I've also uh, done some private practice and, and worked with um, youth again, doing family therapy. I have, you know, specific training in family therapy as well. Um, and yeah, supporting youth with lots of different mental health struggles, I'm, I'm sure as you can imagine, um, a lot of youth and folks, they have more than one mental health concern, right? Yeah, and, you know, yeah. maybe they have an eating disorder and they could also have substance use um, issues or, you know mental health, um, anxiety, depression. Um, so yeah, yeah so I, I, uh, I like to work closely with, with youth who have, um, what we call concurrent disorders, which, mm. which means, um, sort of more than one mental health and, or, um, addiction or substance yeah. use. I, I've got a, I mean, this might be a bit of a, a, a bit of a broad and like, you know, 
gargantuan in size type question to kind of <laughs> throw at you right at the very top. But just out of curiosity, um, you know, before we before we get like, you know, really dig our hands into the the um, the mental health and addictions, like the specifics of it, just out mm-hmm. of curiosity, out of the out of the work that you've done um, over the span of time that you've been doing this work. I mean, you, you seem like a young person, um, mm-hmm. you know, so like obviously you haven't been doing this for like 50 years, but no, um, but, <laughs> no, but, but long, long enough to hold, you know, a couple of different positions in different places across the country. So I'm, I'm curious in, in your thoughts, how has, how has the, like the, the, the space of mental health among youth shifted since the, since the pandemic, you know, like, mm. pre, like, like pre pandemic and post pandemic ha, have things shifted drastically um, as a lot of people were kind of anticipating as, as COVID mm-hmm. was ramping up in those early days. You know, I remember a lot of like talk about like, Oh, well, you know, like who knows what kind of ramifications this is going to have on yeah. our youth and, and things like that. So, you know, not that we're not that it's been that long, but a few years out mm-hmm. now, what's, what's this, what's it looking like? Yeah, I know it's, it's a great question. Um, and I think there are probably lots of ramifications and sort of impacts that we don't even know of yet. Right. Unfortunately. Um, but absolutely, you know, I, I think even clinically what I'm seeing with youth and families, I, I can kind of just speak more so to my experience because they're also was in a lot of really studies or, or research and statistics on this um, a little bit, but, but not a ton yet. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I think youth really struggled during the pandemic. I think um, even now that, you know, for, for most people's lives, things are kind of a little bit back to normal, whatever that means. But um, there were a lot of big changes and losses in, in youth's lives, right, over the mm. pandemic, like lots of youth who maybe didn't get to go to their graduation ceremonies. Mm. I mean, being out of school, too, for, I, I mean, I know in Ontario, it was a couple of years, yeah, right, where yeah. it was pretty much just online. Um, and that's hugely isolating for, for youth, right, yeah. who, like, their people at uh, you know during adolescence is their their friends right mm-hmm. um and so not being able to see them is incredibly challenging it's incredibly isolating um and we know that with isolation if you're already predisposed to struggle with mental health that's you know just going to yeah. exacerbate that um and then you know let alone increase in in substance use right like i've i've worked personally with um, several youth whose uh, substance use really increased or even started um, during the pandemic because it's Mm -hmm. like they felt like they didn't really have anything else to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, yeah. 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 It it made me I was thinking about this the other day. Like I speak at universities um, Mm -hmm. and and oftentimes I'm speaking at universities for like uh, like during orientation week. And I I was at. Wilford, Wilford Laurier and I was having this thought you know I was talking to like the organiz- organizers of the event and stuff and and they were going yeah it's really it's a really weird time because we're having we're having all of these students arrive to the university and this is like the first year where they and this this was last year when, when I had this conversation but this is the first year that they're all arriving to the university and the last two years they haven't been actually going, attending school. They've been mm-hmm. doing everything from home and now they've graduated. So they had, you know, they had grade 10 where they were going to school and everything was fine. And then grade 11, they stayed home, grade 12, they stayed home. And now they're yeah. transitioning, coming back to university and they're coming to a place. And yeah. I was thinking, holy shit. Like when I transitioned from high school to university, that in and of itself was already a stressful event. Oh yeah. Huge. But to, but to take like, two years of isolation and then to be just tossed into this new space, whether that be a new country that you've moved to or a new city, oftentimes for a lot of these students. Like, it took me a year to get comfortable socializing with like our friend group. Yeah. <laughs> after yeah, not, not yeah. being able to like, see <laughs> yeah, each other. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. So like I just, you know, it, it is, it's one of those things like you mentioned, like the ramifications of it are, are really, are, are really not going to be known for, for quite a long time, but it's, it's very clear that there's been a, a, a really big effect on, on on everybody but it, but it, but especially you know from this conversation about the the youth 
Yeah, yeah. And just to sort of add to that, I mean, when we think about developmental stages as well, like for an adolescent, a year's time is a long, long time, yeah. right? And so if you think about even like a few months can be excruciating long, excruciatingly long for some adolescents. And and so, yeah, to think that this is, you know, two plus years of like a really significant change in how schooling is done, how they're, you know, interacting socially, um, you know, they're in some ways too, it's like they're, they weren't, for some youth, I don't want to say everyone, but for some youth, they weren't getting kind of even just sort of the typical socialization um, experience, right? That yeah. that you'd get as mm. as an adolescent. So it's yeah. yeah. It makes me think of so we actually uh, just a couple hours ago had a conversation with um, an early childhood educator, and mm-hmm. um, it makes me think like having this conversation with you, who who is you know works with adolescents. Um, I think of like how like that path of of sort of growing up. Um, and like learning that kids go through, but then also the, like the traumas and the things that impact them and sort of shape them into their adolescence. And so I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, speaking maybe specifically ab- about your work, um, with, with people with eating disorders, um, what are the sort of things or are there things that, that, that kids experience through their childhood that sort of lead to, you know, um, experiencing these mental uh, like different types of mental disorders in their mm-hmm. in their teens or are these things that we just don't know that much about can you talk a little bit about that yeah yeah absolutely so i i think with yeah any mental health concern whether it's specifically an eating disorder or a substance use disorder or you know anything in between um the, it's really hard to pinpoint sort of one specific cause or, or factor if if I'm understanding your question correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it really it's, it is a multitude of factors that come into play, right? Like if we look at sort of like the biopsychosocial model, right. It sort of looks at, you know, biologically speaking um, if you have a family history of, of mental health concerns in your family, you, you might be more biologically um, predisposed to developing a specific type of disorder or, or mental health concern. Um, you mean, obviously, your environment growing up. So, um, you know, obviously, parents do the best that they can with with the information they have and, and sort of their own level of healing. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, intergenerational trauma gets passed down, right, where Mm. maybe it's not the most supportive environment or for probably good reason, parents just aren't able to be there in the way that um, that the child needs. Mm. Um, And then you've got, you know, socially with I mean, now social media is a whole other a whole other conversation and topic, but um, yeah, just impact and influence from from peers, right? And um, mm. there could also be other experiences that have nothing to do with family, or you know, it's so it's it really is a multitude of factors that that come into play mm. um, that then sort of triggers the onset um, of of mental health struggles. What what sort of things have you done in your work to like to better understand cuz I I and then when I was asking the question I was thinking of like the complexity of that like all these different sort of factors that influence the you know way that people experience the world and I was thinking of like like what a challenge it must be to you know try in whatever capacity to to help a person understand those experiences and how they um influence mm-hmm. their experience of the world. Like what, mm-hmm. what sort of things, um, have you found to be effective in like helping someone work through, um, mm-hmm. those experiences? Yeah. Um, so I mean, lots of, lots of different things. Um, one of the things that, that often sticks with me is sort of, um, in this line of work, we, we kind of talk about, you know, the inexperience itself obviously can be traumatic, but often, um, what sticks with the person is sort of how that event was handled or navigated after the fact. Um, And so I think that can be really helpful in terms of, you know, working with youth and families and, and trying to sort of, support the, the youth moving forward or, or whoever moving forward. Um, And I, I really like that as well, because 
obviously in in this world we can't guarantee that there's going to be you know that there's always going to be negative experiences and there are things that are so out of our control right um and so sort of the good news about that is you know unfortunately life can throw really tough things at us and um it's it's more about the the support system you have following an event or following you know witnessing something etc um that really can help reset the the trajectory or or you know kind of mm. put you on a, a different path um so mm. yeah um sorry nice. i can also go into other other ideas and things and, and ways to work but that's something that just came to mind as, well, no, as you, you were yeah no it's great it's great uh i i, I mean I, I would love to i would love to kind of pivot here and and really dive into um dive into your thoughts around the the opioid crisis uh i know that's a big part yeah. of like your work right now um mm-hmm. and um you know this is something that we've we've tackled on the show in the past a number of times um and it's always one of those things that's really just like staggering um like you know I, i'm always left uh kind of in shock whenever we we talk about the op- opioid opioid crisis um yeah and, and i think that shock sort of comes from this this place of feeling as though like this problem is so huge and i am i feel so helpless in in terms of yeah. like being able to provide any sort of aid when it comes to mm-hmm. like this massive fucking problem that this country or you know this 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 continent is is dealing with um, yeah, absolutely. Some some interesting stats here, Bri. Ninety four percent of opioid overdose deaths happen by accident, and young Canadians aged fifteen to twenty four are the fastest growing population requiring hospital care from opioid overdoses. Um, mm-hmm. It's obviously a massive issue. Actually, you know, not very recently, um, we 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 actually found out that we lost a, a, a good friend and past um, guest of the show due to an mm. accidental uh, overdose. Um, yeah. Let's talk about that. Let's talk, I mean, that like that stat, 94% of opioid overdose deaths happen by accident. What does that, what does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you said, it's, it's, it can feel so um, overwhelming and like that it's a, so hopeless when we look at the stats and and see sort of what's happening right uh, with with people who use substances um yeah so sorry now now i'm forgetting what your specific question was well i was i was just talking you know the the 94 of opioid or overdoses o- overdose deaths ha- uh, happening by accident um yeah. you know when, when i read that it, it it's i'm sort of Part of me wonders, like, what, part of me wonders, what, what does that even mean? Is that is that right. a case of like, you know, when when you say by accident, what constitutes as an accident when it comes to an overdose? Like, like yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's a, a plethora of different scenarios that can that can end up with mm-hmm. that outcome. But like, what what are some some examples of like what that looks like? Right. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. So I, I think, um, again, lo- yeah, lots of different ways that it, that it can happen. Um, one of the biggest things that I believe we're seeing is that a lot of opioids, like some, such as fentanyl, right? Like that's a, one of the, the yeah, really, one of the big ones. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. like it, it's being laced in lots of other other drugs right so if you think about even like using drugs recreationally um you know it might be something like uh you're you might be using an upper for example like a stimulant so something mm-hmm. like um cocaine or or um whatever that even can be laced with fentanyl without the person's knowledge um so i think that's one of the the really challenging pieces is that any substance that that you purchase um, could have another substance mixed in with it, right? And and the reason, or my understanding anyway, of the reason that people, why that happens is that it's, you know, fentanyl is relatively cheap compared to other drugs. Um, and so it can provide, you know, the, the the people who are selling, like they get more bang for their buck essentially, right? right. If, if it's laced with, with other um, uh other drugs substances, yeah yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. there's, a, and then, there's an in- interesting podcast that i listened to the other day that there was a guy who sold fentanyl 
who was being interviewed, and he said, I wouldn't even buy loose cigarettes at a bodega because there could be fentanyl in them. He was like, basically like there's so much of it. It's being used on everything because like if you add this to your supply of whatever you're selling, then it makes that experience more intense for the person who's taking and there. And it just makes them go that if you want good stuff, go to this guy or whatever, whether it's cigarettes or cocaine or weed or whatever, which was Mm -hmm. like crazy to hear that. Cause I never thought, I thought like people who did, who were taking fentanyl mostly knew that they were taking an opi, an opioid or opiate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thing too, is that like, in such a small dose, it can be highly lethal, right? Mm -hmm, Like depending, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it's a bit different for everyone's, you know, body makeup and all that stuff, but, um, it's really dangerous in very small amounts. Like, um, actually my, one of my sisters is a nurse, um, and she works for the city of Toronto and, and, um, she's worked in safe injection sites and things, but, um, she's talked about how like the potency of even like fentanyl in, in a, couple grains of salt like that amount could potentially be lethal to somebody Mm -hmm. um and sort of the right circumstances and so it's like it's really scary because you you might have no idea that you're you're consuming that and um yeah yeah and and then there's there's you know there's a rise now in carfentanil which is even you know it's even more potent than fentanyl which is yeah. Wild to think. Um, and that's becoming more and more prevalent in, in the spaces of, you know, of, of like recreational drug use. Um, but what about like when it comes to things like opioid addiction and, and youth? Um, mm-hmm. Like I feel like, you know, it, it, again, we've covered o- the opioid crisis in a number of ways over the years, but we've never really talked about it from the from the vantage point of, of it being a, an issue for for young adults. Um, right. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I don't think it's something I've ever really thought about. So, um, I guess, you know, when, when you are seeing, when you are seeing people come in to, to, you know, to, to Bellwoods, to, to try to try to get to the bottom of what's going on, like, what are, what are, what are most of the cases looking like from your perspective? Is this, is this a case of like youth who were put on opioids for some sort of injury or something and, and it's led to it's led to an addiction or is it more so like, you know, disadvantaged youth that, that, that are, that are, you know, using drugs because it's, it's like an outlet and an escape. Um, or, you know, is it, is it really a mixed bag of, of a, a host full of different, different situations? Yeah, I honestly, I think it's a mixed bag. Absolutely. Um, So for sure, there are some youth who maybe have, you know, a sports injury or something, and then they're, you know, they're out of uh, playing their whatever sport it is um, for a while, and they might have some painkillers. I, I, you know, I, I hope and like to believe that doctors are a lot more careful nowadays and in, in, yeah. uh, prescribing um, pain management medication. Um, but absolutely, that can be one way that that, that starts. Um, and then when you think about it too, there's the loss on top of it. Like maybe it means for that youth that they're out of the season um, for their sport, right? And so there can be a really deep felt sense of, of grief or loss around that. And so, you know, turning to substances to help manage some of those heavy emotions can come up. Right. And and obviously that's true for for youth, even in the absence of, you know, the sports injury. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. I think the pandemic, right, like being home alone, being bored, probably, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just starting with experimenting with some some drugs. Right. Like, I mean, un- unfortunately, it's pretty common in adolescence mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to experiment with drugs. And then, you know, from there, it can kind of spiral. And and I think for sure for youth who um are a little bit more predisposed, right, to developing a substance use um, issue. Uh, you know, again, with isolation and and the pandemic, it's you know you experiment with with something and with, I mean, alcohol and and other drugs too. Like when your tolerance starts to to raise, right, and you're not getting the same mm. dopamine hit or or buzz mm-hmm. um, that you were getting, it's you tend to then seek out different types of drugs that are stronger and can get you mm-hmm. feeling okay or, or better, right. More quickly. Mm-hmm. So how do, how do youth like end up at a, a center mm-hmm. like Bellwoods? Like how do you find people who are, who are, who are doing 
these types of drugs? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good question. It's, um, I mean, unfortunately, we're probably finding them a little bit later uh, in their journey of, of sort of healing, right? But often it's, you know, connecting with um, doctors from clinics, right? So like addiction medicine, um, pedi- pediatricians, right? Who maybe run a clinic and, and have a number of youth that are struggling, um, you know, from concerned parents who are noticing that, you know, their their teen is acting different and more withdrawn and and you know maybe they they notice um they either find substances on their teen or or it mm. become for some somehow they become aware that their teen's using um could be teachers and guidance counselors right that mm. uh, work in the schools um that then flag it um unfortunately it's not usually the youth themselves that come forward yeah. um for the support. Um, but I mean, I've even had calls from uh, parents of uh, like their kids' uh, friend, right. if that makes sense. Like sure. the, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, really it's, uh, I mean, unfortunately there's so, so many youth out there that are struggling. And, and so it's lots of different, lots of different places yeah. and areas. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. And I know that Bellwood Health Services has a like a 12 week intensive um, outpatient treatment program. Um, mm-hmm. What does that look like? You know, like, so, you know, a, a, a parent calls and says, my, I, you know, I, I, my, my child is struggling. Um, they're, they're using, uh, we need help. They, Mm -hmm. they, I guess they send them, you know, they send the child to you guys or the, you know, the adolescent to you guys and, and then 12 weeks of, of work, like intensive work to try to get through and heal. Like, what does that, what does that look like? You know, what's, what's a day to day for someone who's going, all right, I'm going to spend the next three months (laughs) in this space to try to like get better. And, 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 uh, you know, I I can only imagine that's a, a really tough. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and be very like very involved in many different ways. So, like, what does that look like for someone coming to see you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, we yeah, right now we have our day program um, operating at the, at the Bellwood facility site, so in Toronto, um, twelve weeks long, and we're actually like a month or so away from uh, opening up uh, about six live-in beds as well. So we are going to have some inpatient sort of twenty-four-seven um, care opening up as well, which. Oh, wow. is- very needed, of course. Um, but in terms of the day-to-day, uh, so it's it's a group-based program. Um, so there are, you know, maximum of 12 uh, youth, teens enrolled in the program at a time. Um, and they're here for the day program, at least, Monday to Friday um, from about 8.30 a.m. until 5.30 p.m. Um, and so they're attending various groups throughout the week. Um, so therapeutic groups such as, uh, you know, using dialectical behavioral therapy, which is DBT for short. Um, Yeah, yeah, uh, which is really focused around um, skill development for emotion regulation, distress tolerance, um, interpersonal effectiveness. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) For people who are just listening and which is everybody, uh, Teresa is just smiling at the fact that Zaya Zaya just (laughs) walked in front of the camera throwing a dog toy at me. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm familiar with DBT um, and, and what is DBT? DBT uh, dialectable Dialectical, dialectical behavioral, behavioral therapy. therapy, um, which is, which, which I've, I've come to know DBT as like the, the sort of primary, um, type of therapy for folks struggling with, uh, borderline personality disorder. Um, mm-hmm. 
and and so actually like so what i'm hearing here is that it's also useful for this sort of treatment of someone who is is in a group setting trying to yeah. trying to uh work on on addiction um which mm-hmm. I, which i actually i didn't i didn't know i i i for some reason i i kind of thought that dbt was only for um yeah. uh, uh borderline what what is what is what do you what makes this type of therapy, DBT therapy, like what, what does that look like? DBT therapy. Yeah. The group, I mean the group therapy part, I mean, I, f- yeah. fuck, I don't know why you, I, I'm, I'm not, asking, I'm not, I know you you're not chair. asking me, you're asking her and I don't know why I'm talking. <laughs> um, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's, it's a therapy. You're, you're right. I think it was mostly um, developed initially for, or, started out working very well for, for folks who struggle with borderline personality disorder. So, um, it, it is very skills-based, um, and which is great because that can be applicable to, to anyone. And, and it really does focus on, um, working, uh, on building skills around like being able to tolerate really uncomfortable situations, um, mm-hmm. being able to tolerate distress of emotion, even just getting to understand and identify emotions that are coming up for you, um, you know, in a, in a very sort of meaningful way um, and interpersonal effectiveness, right? So being able to kind of navigate challenges that arise within relationships and, you know, how to essentially like how how do you resolve a conflict? How do you um, kind of build up your skills around like understanding somebody else's perspective and what's going on for them and vice versa? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there's, there's lots of different um, kind of components to, to DBT. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's honestly, it's, it's applicable for anyone. It, it certainly helps with, with uh, folks that struggle with um, borderline personality disorder. Um, but it's, it's, super applicable for, for lots of people. So, so yeah, so that, that's one of the components of the program. Um, and, uh, we also offer other group-based therapies as well. Um, so, you know, I think pretty importantly, teens can be like, it's hard for them to sit for long periods of time, right? Like whether they're in a classroom or, you know, in a group setting. And so we are, um, offering some groups that are a little bit more um, somatic based. So sort of like Mm. the mind to body connection, right? Mm. So movement based activities. um, And uh, actually one of, one of the modalities I've been trained in um, is called internal family systems. Uh, So it's IFS for short. Um, And despite the name, it's not actually a a family therapy or that's not sort of the the primary use of it. Um, But it, it is a, a really lovely um, way for for teens and anyone really to connect with kind of the different parts of ourselves and um, you know understand the behaviors that we we engage in and how mm. they serve us. You know, usually we have a good sense of how they don't serve us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just sort of again, like even going into our own bodies and and kind of yeah, that mind to body connection and. Wait, yeah, wait, is yeah. is IFS is internal family? Does that stand for like or does that represent the internal family of your emotions and behaviors? Kind of, yeah. The, yeah. Like how they interact much. with one another. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of it, is, I mean, this is very kind of quick overview, but it, the idea is that we all have parts, right? Like I have, you know, parts of me um that feel a certain way about something like me maybe maybe i'll give you an example um so there's different types of parts right and and so um one of them is called like firefighter parts so firefighter parts for example are the parts of us that kind of work to extinguish if you will um kind of the emotional fire so they can look like substance use they could be you know mm. um emotional eating right binging purging um shopping like usually those are things to kind of um distract us or or kind of like help us escape from um you know emotional pain yeah yeah right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and then yeah and then there are other types too i won't i won't spend too much time on this but there could be you know manager parts so Mm. um an example of a manager part is they're they're a little bit more um how do we say uh uh proactive rather than reactive so Mm. 
for example, I have a very big people pleasing part. So this part of mine actually has developed this really great skill of being able to walk into a room and kind of scan and within moments sort of be able to assess, okay, there's something, some tension happening in this corner. Mm. These people look really happy. I might sort of, you know, move my mm -hmm. way over to the happier quote unquote side of the room. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so these, these parts take on these roles from really young ages um, and they, they do serve us quite well. Yeah. Um, they can be very resourceful and helpful. Um, obviously over time, you know, maybe some of their roles are not as helpful as they once used mm -hmm. to be, or when it starts to become an issue like substances or an eating disorder. Um, and so it's just really kind of looking at all the different parts of us mm -hmm. um, and yeah, bringing healing to, yeah, to some of those parts that hold a lot of um, pain. Mm -hmm. and, so. and with that like aspect of, of like uh, someone's healing journey, is the idea mm -hmm. that like just by understanding that, then then that gives you the opportunity to like like that's that's saying like if you can name it, you can tame it, sort of thing. Yeah. So th so that is definitely a huge piece of it, right? Like even just like acknowledging and bringing awareness to the various parts of ourselves, or you know the emotions that we're experiencing, super important. Um, but then the other piece too is um, like going well with IFS specifically, like going inward and being able to um, do some of the healing work directly with, with those parts. Like you, it's sort of, I mean, you, some people are aware of like kind of like inner child work and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's sort of along those same lines. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so uh, yeah, healing really, I think that it gets amplified when other people or even within yourself, you can witness the pain and mm. process it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, rather than just kind of bringing awareness, which is also very important, but kind mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. good to it, move it along. <laughs> it's, it makes me think of like this whole, like this, this 12 week program. I, I don't want this to, to come across or sound in, insensitive, but no, I, yeah. but I, I imagine that there's a lot of stigma around programs like this in the sense that like somebody who's not privy to like what really happens there probably assumes that like, wow, that's gotta be a dark and sad and depressing place to be there, you know, experiencing all of these people try to work through like such challenging times. And I had the, th <laughs> the thought, like when you were talking about, you know, almost the, like I'm, I'm imagining almost these like sort of workshops um, and mm -hmm. I was thinking of like a cohort of like startup companies in an incubator. And it's like, you know, we're in 12 weeks and like we're going in super green in the beginning. And like after these 12 weeks, we'll come out on the other side and like, <laughs> have, like, you know, we'll have this new pitch that's refined and ready to go. And it's going to make our lives so much better. And I kind of think of like, like what an exciting time for these people, even though like obviously acknowledging that like, you know, it is there is probably a lot of really, really hard work and 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 sort of dark places that they have to go to explore. Mm -hmm. But is like, is there a, a sense of like, of, of feeling of like hope and excitement and knowing that like, even though this is going to be really hard, that this will, this has the mm -hmm. opportunity to like really change people's lives in a profound way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, of course there are, like you said, like really tough days and, and, you know, a lot of challenges that come up that really, really pull at your heartstrings and, mm. and affect you. Um, and I would say that a lot of the time, a significant portion of the time it is filled with hope, right? Because you're, mm. I mean, even as a, as a therapist, right? Like you're engaging with people in such meaningful, powerful ways, right? And, and to, to witness and, and sort of, support these youth especially who you know are getting to know themselves and they're opening themselves up um in mm -hmm. really vulnerable brave powerful ways like it's yeah like there's a lot of hope there um mm -hmm. and yeah it's it's to, sorry to go so, ahead <laughs> well to, to something you mentioned there but the, you you got me thinking brian when you when you mentioned like the the stigma attached to um this type of work and not not this type of work but well, no, yeah, yeah, like this type of work uh, from the from the patient's perspective, right? Like, I'm just mm -hmm. I'm I'm putting myself I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who um, 
is go, is is now seeking help for for let's say an addiction. Yeah. Um, and I can imagine that if I was in that position and I was going to be signing up for a twelve week outpatient program to get to the bottom of um, you know a substance abuse problem, mm-hmm. um, I would probably feel a lot of shame around yeah. the fact that I'm even in this program that I have to show up to this fucking thing for twelve weeks straight to work mm-hmm. on this shit. And I've found myself in this position that I even have to be here right now or that my parents have forced me to go to this thing. (laughs) And now, and now, you know, it's like now my, now who, who, who knows who's going to find out or, you know, whatever, whatever's going through, I'm sure lots of people's minds. Um, what kind of, is there, you know, knowing that that is obviously the case for some people who are there. Mm hmm. Is How there, successful there, has it been that you've reframed <laughs> it as a startup incubator? <laughs> <laughs> my my yeah. question my question is like you know what what kinds of things are actively being done to address those concerns with folks that are in the program? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head there. Like it it is really challenging for for youth. Um, and and families, right? To kind of to take on twelve weeks, like that's a good a good chunk of time, right? Yeah. Three months. Um, and of course, there's that worry of like, what are people going to say? How am I going to explain a three month absence from school, right? And like, yeah. So a lot of um, the work that we do is sort of even before admissions, and it, we're we're getting better at this too, uh, you know, sort of as we, as we go along. But I think the first thing is working with with parents and caregivers around mm. sort of how to frame this, how to support the youth um, to come in, right? Because to be completely frank, like most youth do not want to be here. Of right? course. Like, yeah, of course. Typ- typically by the end, you know, they're very, you know, mm-hmm. happy that they are here and, you know, all the things, but um, it is really tough. The first couple of weeks getting a, a youth in every day is, is really challenging because mm-hmm. it, it does pluck them out of their life in a sense. Um, I mean, with the day program, their home evenings and weekends, but it, it is a lot to try and explain. And so, mm-hmm. you know, sort of coaching the youth in, in whatever way that they feel comfortable, like, well, firstly, they don't, owe anyone any explanation Mm -hmm. but usually that's not sort of enough so Mm -hmm. you know even you know talking with youth about you know explaining that they're getting some support for a medical concern which actually is not a lie because you know medically speaking there are lots of issues that come up with substance use or mental health concerns specifically eating disorders as well. Um, and uh, <laughs> distracted Zay's by back. the baby back. <laughs> She's back. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think like having a supportive family as well, right. Mm. Who can, can kind of reinforce and, and, and be supportive and talk mm-hmm. about how, how brave it is to take this step mm-hmm. um, can be really helpful. And for the, for, um, for folks who like, for folks who don't have that, you know, like for, yeah. the, for the for the folks who are coming there who don't have a supportive family or or don't have, you know, that that unit that like is is backing them and and cares for them, because I'm sure there are those as well that mm-hmm. aren't as fortunate. Um, what you know, is there extra is there sort of extra care or extra sort of work that has to go into to um, supporting that person through those those concerns or feelings that might arise in terms of like the stigma attached to it all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, I think, uh, unfortunately, yeah, we, we do see youth that are in that position. And so, um, everyone's treatment looks a little bit different, but of course we're, we're doing a little bit more work around, um, you know, how that person can, can build up more of a community for themselves in the absence of, you know, parents or caregivers for whatever reasons. Mm. Um, and I mean, it's tough, right? Like at the end of the day, if somebody is really adamant about not coming, like this is a voluntary program, so we can't force them to be here. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, I try to lead conversations with curiosity and compassion and, and really sort of understand where, where the, the, youth is in terms of, you know, their readiness for, for a program like this. Um, yeah. And try and give them mm-hmm. as much sort of autonomy as, as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know if that sort of helps. No, it's great. Answer. It's great. And then, and then like in terms of, um, you know, we're, we're talking about the outpatient program, but it, it, 
but what I gathered earlier is that you know there's there's this there's this move towards a, a more in, a more sort of uh, full time inpatient program um, mm-hmm. for yourself, like and for the you know for the whole team there as you transition into that type of program. What you know? What are the what's 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 that process like? You know, from a professional standpoint, is is that is that uh, like logistically and 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 from like administration side of things? Like, is that a is is that stressful for you, you guys? You know, like to take on this, to to transition <laughs> this thing from like eight to five, you know, Monday to Friday to a twenty four hour sort of situation with with a group of folks. Like, what's that like? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a lot of planning and and um, you know, kind of coordination within Bellwood specifically in the various teams like our, you know, our operation side, you know, connecting with uh, you know, our medical docs and ensuring that we have adequate, you know, nursing, medical support, psychiatric support mm-hmm. kind of as as we ramp up to this to opening up the live-in portion. Um, yeah, and then even like logistics of like we have some rooms down the hall here where we're like literally putting together IKEA bed frames, right? To yeah. like in, in order to to prep and, and anticipate. So it, actually in a lot of ways it's exciting and it's mm. fun because it's like you know, my I'm my brain is working in different ways that, mm-hmm. that I haven't had mm-hmm. to use it before. Um so it's it is. It's a lot of planning. Um, but uh yeah, it's mostly it's exciting um mm-hmm. as opposed to to stressful. I'm I'm really curious that like I so I grew up um racing canoes and um and well, nice. I, I coached canoeing for a number of years. Um particularly kids who were like around 11 to 14 years old. Mm. And um, like one of the best things about the, the, the absolute best thing about being a coach was the personal connection with, um, with the athletes, like building these relationships mm. with these kids were in the, like in such a, like these uh, formative years where, you know, like you'd spend mm. a, a season with them and like see them totally change and grow mm-hmm. as human beings and, and become like yeah. really, really great people. Um, and I've always had, so like since I started going to therapy, one of the, the, the hard things I found about my relationship with my therapist is that like, I, I feel such a strong connection to her in the sense that like, I've talked about the most vulnerable moments of my life and have like really opened up, but I don't really, I don't know who she is. Like I, mm-hmm. I mean, like within you know like what she's allowed to say i like kind of have an idea of who she is as <laughs> yeah. a person but like it's like a very one way relationship mm-hmm. and for sure and like being in this position where you're working with you know these youth where you, i imagine the relationships that you form or can form with these these kids are so deep and you're so invested in in their lives um i imagine mm-hmm. it can be really hard when those, when their lives don't go in the way that, Mm. that you hope and no matter what you try to do and help them, it doesn't work out. I'm curious for like, from your personal perspective, like what is it like for you to manage your own experience in, Mm. in trying to help them? Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's really tricky, of course. Um, I mean, one of the things is uh, I also go to therapy, right? I mean, I'm I'm biased because I am a therapist, (laughs) but I, I, I think therapy is incredibly helpful for, for people, even if you're not currently struggling with anything. Um, and so that, that's one of the, the ways that I do it. But I think too, is like, sort of working with like sitting with those feelings firstly right because of course they're always going to be you know cases or or things where it's like you know a youth for lots of reasons just isn't able to get out of the really crummy circumstances that they're in or maybe they have a relapse or or whatever it is um i mean it's about kind of doing some of my own work around that too right Mm -hmm. like sort of what parts of me really have kind of the the feeling of responsibility and want to caretake and and sort of almost like put to put place too much of the responsibility on myself right and um and it's tough right like to to have that line of 
being able to hold a lot of compassion for for these youth um, and not sort of bring it home at the end of the day, so to speak. Um, I mean, I think we're all human. We all will bring it home to to some extent. But I, again, I think it's like, how do you how do you work through that? How do you have your own supports, um, whether it's a partner or friends? I tend to to kind of navigate and, and find myself in groups of, of friends who are in healthcare or social mm-hmm. workers themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's helpful when you have people who kind of get it and and you know are, are going through similar things. Um, which is also great for I mean the the youth themselves, right? Like it is it is kind of a weird relationship when you think about it, like the one mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, you know, having other other youth in the the group too is great. Yeah. For them, like the power of of peers, right, and and having shared experiences like that. Um, yeah. Sorry, I was kind of getting off topic, but no, it's funny. Like one way I've been thinking about my relationship with my therapist in a way that like makes me feel better about it is that like she obviously loves or like finds some sort of meaning in what she does, and just being there to listen is the way that she can show up professionally in our relationship. So, mm-hmm. like even though I don't know her at her core I feel like she cares about me because she cares about her job and her job is to be there and support me and so I I, like I found it really difficult the hardest thing I found about therapy in the beginning was like I wanted to like reach out after and be like hey by the way like if there's anything you've been struggling with then you need any (laughs) like you need a hand feel free to reach out or whatever but like obviously like that you know it's just that doesn't make sense but it's just like feeling of wanting mm. to have a more, I don't know, mutual relationship in that in that sense. But I feel like I've sure. kind of changed my mind a bit about what that might actually look like. It mm. just looks different. Yeah. Yeah. It, actually, it's funny you're saying that because I think in some ways you're having me reflect too, like with you, I mean, like oh, like I'm, I'm not going to be friends with you. So I think in some yeah, ways it, yeah, makes, yeah, right. it, it makes it a bit easier because it's sort of like in my day to day, you know, I'm yeah, typically unless it's like, you know, a nephew or niece or something, I'm, right. you know, not having lots of conversations with, with teens on a regular basis. Right. So yeah. um, I do wonder if for me, there's a bit of that separation, which, which can be helpful. Um, but certainly like I've worked with adults as well and, and yeah, yeah, it, it can be tough. Yeah. I, yeah. I get as we as we come up to time here. One thing that I'm kind of curious mm. about is, um, you know, we we've we've talked on the show a lot about the barrier barriers to access when it comes to mental health um, intervention. So, yeah. for, you know, with the with the work that you are doing at, at Bellwood, um, what you know, if someone's listening to this right now and, and maybe they know someone or mm-hmm. they have a they have a, a suspicion that like somebody in their life who is, you know, an adolescent is, is struggling with perhaps their mental health or, or an addiction. Um, what are the, like, what, you know, what is the, what is the, the, the path of least resistance or the best course of action to try and, and get the care that might be needed in that case? And this is a broad question, like, you know, Canada wide, really like not specific Mm -hmm. to Toronto, um, but like yeah. for anybody, like what are the steps that you would suggest for people to try to do in order to like mm. receive the care that they need, even in, even, you know, even within the fact that, that there's a, there's a lot of people out there that are waiting two, yeah. three years to get the, the help that they actually need. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if it's, uh, you know, you're, you're a teen yourself or, or maybe a peer of yours, right. You're, you're an adolescent and one of your friends or somebody, you know, is struggling. Like I think for sure with any time that that's the case, like reach out to supportive adults, whether it's a teacher, you know, guidance counselor, uh, parents, of course, if, if you feel comfortable to do that. Um, I mean, a lot of teens now are starting to, to get into therapy younger and younger, which I, I love. Mm. <laughs> um, so certainly connecting with, with a therapist or certain, like if it's, if you as a teen are seeing a therapist and you're concerned about your friend, bring that up to your therapist. If you're not comfortable bringing it up to a parent or anyone else. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's also things like 
kids help phone, right. That mm -hmm. you can call in at any time. You can also, there's a texting option, um, that can be really helpful. So you can call in for yourself, but you can also call in for, for other, um, other youth that you're, you know, of that are struggling. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think that's sort of the, the first, the first way. And then I think once, once the need has been identified and, you know, you've got maybe some trusted adults working on your behalf to, to get the support, um, it, a lot of the time, yeah, it's like trying to figure out, okay, how do I even get the support? What, it, what mm -hmm. exists out there, mm -hmm. um, which can be super, super challenging. I think I would recommend, um, that that teens will they can go to their family doctor as well um usually like a, the physician would be somebody who could then provide a referral to whether it's like a, a local hospital um program or community-based program mm -hmm. often mm -hmm. most of the the child and youth mental health community-based programs are self-referral too so you can also kind of call them up if you do like a quick google search mm -hmm. um yeah. And then, you know, when, when there are very lengthy wait lists, like a place like Bellwood, for example, um, mm -hmm. we, we don't tend to have very long wait, wait lists, if any, um, in, in some ways, because we are a private hospital. Right. So, um, so that's sort of the, the, the good piece is if, if, you know, your family has the means, um, they're, there is support available more quickly, which anyway, there's a whole other conversation about how that can be problematic, but, uh, mm -hmm, yeah, um, yeah. and then on the flip side of things too, like Bellwood also has, um, a charitable organization attached to, to us called the new start foundation. Um, and so they provide, uh, funding support and subsidies for families who can't mm -hmm. afford, um, or if insurance doesn't cover or, you know, those, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Well, th this has been um, this has been a really really valuable conversation, I think, and I, and I really do appreciate you taking time of your schedule to sit down with us and give us some insight into the work that it is that you do, and mm -hmm. and you know to give us a little bit of insight into um, into the issue that is you know that is still um, uh, uh, among us um, surrounding yeah. the opioid crisis, and that it isn't something that just affects adults or. You know, mm -hmm. the like people, the unhoused folks, it is it's an issue that is affecting many, many, many people, including adolescent and youth. And uh, and so we really mm -hmm. do value uh, the time that you've taken to sit down and chat with us. It's, it's yeah. been really great. So thank you. for Thank that. you. Thank you. Can I add one quick thing before please, we close? Totally. Yeah, please. Do. I wanted to mention, too, also please pick up naloxone kits. Um, yes. They should be available in your in your pharmacies. Right. Mm -hmm. For free. Um mm -hmm. If you're a teen that uses or you know some people that use or you're going to a party of your friend's house, just carry one on you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of it's, course, the, it, yeah, the it's it's super easy to do. I, I do it once a year. I, you know, I you go to you go to your pharmacy. There's no questions asked. So, you know, if yeah. you're if you're like a if you're a young a young buck listening to this right now. And you're like, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want the, I don't want the narcs to know. Uh, they don't ask any questions. You just, you just say you, you want this and you want to, you know, and they, they'll give you a little sort of primer on how it works. It's very simple. It's very easy. And, um, and yeah. it saves lives. Um, and, and I yeah. know that for firsthand experience, it, it, it saves lives. So, um, do it. And like everybody should do it. You know, I have mine, keep it in my house. Anybody mm -hmm. who's staying at my house, I let them know where it is. Um, yeah. And so thank you for that. Thank you for that reminder, because that is, uh, <laughs> yeah, no problem. is a really, really important message. Um, mm -hmm. Well, thank you. This has been this has been a real treat, Teresa. Thank you so yeah, much. for your you. time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, yeah. I really enjoyed chatting with. Well, I was going to say the three of you, but mostly the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> he's been here. You know, he's just yeah. running around chasing that that little thing around. So, yeah. yeah thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Thank you. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. 
The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sip. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.